gonna say he's gonna come and get me. It's true. They're outside. Totally outside. I mean, I would invite the NSA guys in for, you know, some, some of the delicious Thai food we've had, but I just don't think there's enough rice left. Though neither of us are super into rice. I mean, I, I think in Thai food, at least, it, it's pretty it's much kind a, of a foundational yeah. element of the of the experience, especially Absolutely. in kind of liquidy-based mm-hmm. food situations like I mean, yeah, coconut you, soup yeah. and, and green curry. Sorry, NSA. You're going to have to sit this meal out next time, though. They can totally come in next time. We should have scones. Why not scones? Why not? Scones and clotted cream for a hardworking spice. They need nice things in life, too. Spies need nice things, too, you guys. <laughs> totally. You guys. <laughs> totally. Just because you, we may not necessarily like them doesn't mean that they don't deserve nice things. We oh, all I- do. I don't know about these unlikable spies you're talking about. But... Are we just talking about James Bond? No, James Bond was the spy who loved me. I don't know if he loved you. Uh, I don't know how things went between you two, but I felt pretty special that one night. I mean, granted, he had just shot like three bad guys in the face and they were on the other side of the room, but... When you've got an opportunity with James Bond, you have to look past strange little silly things like three bodies in the corner of your room. Yeah, but I would, uh, you know, I just get a feel. That is is real love. That's like a number one fan type of real love. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Versus C, for me, I feel like James Bond is just, I don't look at him and go, now that's a guy that takes direction very well. No, I think nah. I can change him. <laughs> Just give me time. You know, he's good. But he's- he never stays around long enough. Well, that's, You're like, that's because oh. he's going through some things. He's going to come back to me is all I'm saying. Okay. Good I luck mean, with I really that. think. Good luck with There's that. something in your tone of voice that makes it sound like you think this isn't going to work out between me and James Bond. I don't think he's relationship material. Whoa. Whoa. I'm not saying you're not. I'm saying he's not. It's not you. It's him. Well, I mean, I feel better about it now on balance because you've shifted the blame to him. (laughs) But at the same time, it's kind of making the three bodies in the corner thing seem a little bit creepier in retrospect. Well, it's not so, so much So I'd that... rather maintain my illusion for the sake of okay. not completely losing my sense of self. So I was just about to say that three body in the corner, not about you. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's also about him. <laughs> totally about him. Ugh, it always was all about him, wasn't it? God always. Damn. It's all about him. That son of a bitch. Those three guys were in your room because of him. Wow. I feel like we've gotten so much good work done already. (laughs) It's okay.
Yeah, I, I feel like we've made so much headway already. I, I hate to change the subject. This is the By That I Mean podcast, and I'm Seth Pearson. And I'm Ikoi Hero. And Ikoi had an awesome idea to record a new kind of episode of By That I Mean for the first time in our somewhat esteemed show's less than illustrious history. We're going to do an entire episode based on one subject where we'll take as much time as we feel we need to to go into some depth. And the topic that we're going to address in this episode of the By That I Mean podcast is K-12 education in America and specifically the quote-unquote school reform movement. One of the issues under the school reform movement is a lot of criticism and dismantling of the teachers' unions. You mean the dirty, money-grubbing child teachers? Yes. Disgusting union thug You know they which, instructors. Absolutely. Ones that are responsible for your children's well-being. For- you hear that, parents? They're the reason your children's well-being sucks. Not that you're a helicopter parent who only shows up five minutes every week to micromanage your child's existence into oblivion. Whoa, we are we are working through a lot of different things here tonight. I'm sorry, I didn't know we were going to open up so many cans of worms already, but... Cans and cans of worms. Cans and cans. Cans and cans. But very few people know the history of the teachers' unions. I'm going to do a a quick background on the National Education Association, which is the largest professional organization and labor union in our country. Um, They are responsible for representing public school teachers as well as other support personnel, faculties, and staffers at um, your K-12 schools as well as colleges and universities, um, retired educators, and college students preparing to become teachers. Um, So the National Education Association started out in, I mean, there were smaller teachers associations, but it became national in 1857. Um, when Tom, 1857. Yeah. Long time ago. Slavery times. Yes. For instance, pre-electricity times. Yes. So what, Outhouse days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a teachers union. Yes. Nationwide. In 1857, yes. Started out when Thomas W. Valentine, the president of the New York State Teachers Association, um, made a call for all the teachers to unite behind a common voice for America's growing public school system. And so that was when they became the National Teachers Association. And they eventually merged with the American Teachers Association, which is the historically black teachers association, um, in 1966, which became the NEA, National Education Association. And they are actually um, also responsible for supporting a lot 
of what we now see is, you know, social progress that we've seen over the last century or so. Um, in 1912, NEA endorsed women's suffrage. They've also lobbied for the GI Bill of Rights um, in 1945, going a little bit back in 1919. They led the way for the nation's first state pension. And by 1945, wow. due to their activities, every state had a pension plan in effect. Um, pension? Pension. I know people don't even know what that what that is. What is a pension? I I literally will never know. <laughs> yes, no, neither but, one of us will. Yeah. But you know, it was this very pink. A, pe- a pension thing. is when they when the company that you work for pays you. A large percentage, up to a full percentage, 100% of what your salary was when you worked for them. Yes. They thank you for the life of work that you put in because jobs used to be careers. And careers used to be kind of like your entire working career spent in one, maybe two, but, you know, not like 20 that you see now. Exactly. There was job security and there was a structural means by which the company would would really help you retire with dignity for having built them economically with your labor for such a long time. Yes. Not just your labor, but your cooperation and your ideas. First people to, or first, one of the first unions. Yes. Is one of the first institutions in American public life to push for a pension for everyone. That's pretty awesome. Yes. Um, They also supported the Civil Rights Act. Um, They led an effort to establish the Bilingual Education Act in 1968. Um, they've done a lot of really awesome things. Uh, in 2009, NEA delegates to the Representative Assembly pass a resolution that opposes the discriminatory treatment of same-sex couples. Um, what year was that? Uh, 2009. Okay. So they have, um, the, aside from being a, a, a union for teachers, they have advocated for a lot of issues that have helped society progress in a really good direction over a hundred for the last hundred years so you know they are not i mean in in terms of that they have been a very very important force in our political landscape and our educational landscape for quite some time um one of the major aspects of teachers unions that get criticized is their retention of what a lot of people like to call bad teachers bad apples that you know tenure often allows for substandard teachers to keep their position which is one right of- that's like one of the perennial and one of the only messages Regarding teachers unions that is transmitted through the corporate media. That's all you hear when like if you whether you're listening to talk radio or whether you're watching political TV like MSNBC or Meet the Press or even Fox News or CNN, any of them. The characterization Absolutely. is that they retain awful teachers forever, that there are never mechanisms to fire them. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes, that those are one of the biggest criticisms. And I was about to say, um, on the other end of that is that part of a lot of times, you know, teachers tend to be at the forefront of social change through education. And one of the aspects of that is that oftentimes, you know, they what a tenure system is, is not to keep bad teachers teaching. That is not the intention of the tenure system. The intention of part of the tenure, well, part of the intention of the tenure system is to allow teachers to teach subjects that may be unpopular and not end up being fired for it. Mm. So, for example, during the civil rights era, a tenured teacher could speak in favor of integration, in favor of giving the vote within a very predominantly white community, for example, that did not hold those values mm -hmm. and that would allow him or her the likelier ability to keep a job. And so part of the tenure position that a lot of educators find important is the ability to maintain integrity that is not subject to popular vote. And also that isn't vulnerable to the politics of whoever their particular school administrator is at any given point in time. Yes. Or the politics of the community yeah. around them. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so... So those are one of the aspects of the criticisms that, you know, doesn't get talked about. I mean, there's, you know, as with anything, of course, are there, you know, issues in the unions? Sure. Are there things that can be improved? Sure. But, you know, there is no doubt that, you know, as a general historical and current position that, you know, they have a lot to offer and it's not in the interest of neither teachers, schools, or students to try to dismantle. Mm. So, so what percentage of teachers are part of this union? 100% um, I believe of the public school teachers are part of the union, I okay. believe. Um, charter school teachers do not have to be. I see. Charter schools teachers are not under unions. There is activity happening that is trying to unionize charter school teachers. Okay, so zooming a little further back. Yes. Charter schools are? Charter schools are privately run schools that are funded by the public. Right. Okay. So the teachers at the charter schools presumably have to be certified somehow, right? I think that would depend on a state by state um, because each state has a different certification requirement. But one of the biggest teachers, the newer teacher programs is the Teach for America program. And their training program can be as little as two weeks. Two weeks? Two weeks. Are you serious? Yes. As little as. that. It's, I'm not saying that that's it. Because I, I have at least one or two friends who did Teach for America. 
I don't think there's any way their training period was only two weeks. I mean, I don't know if it was like years and years and years. Years and years and years. Let's see. <laughs> Are you an American? Um, yeah, yes, I am. Um, would you like to teach? Uh, okay. You're hired. Training complete. Now, this one says five weeks. Oh, okay. Five weeks of preparation and then follow-up visits. And this is... And the, is that without a teaching degree? And that is yes. Basically, the um, Teach for America started with a fairly, you know, positive-minded intention, which was to um, supply a lot of urban cities with teachers unfortunately how a lot of the the part big part of criticism for teach for america that's getting is that it is actually displacing veteran teachers and schools are hiring teach for america are they cheaper uh well they're not union uh so yes <laughs> Yeah, no. They don't uh, have to give them the same benefits because yeah. they're not well, part I of mean, the union. Well, I mean, yeah, because a lot of the times these are um, charter school. They they end up being supplied to charter schools, especially in urban areas. And they don't have to stay. These are not necessarily people that are looking to teach us a career. Um, the requirement because, is... Because, you know, if there's anything that should really be a hobby, it's interacting with kids during the most formative years when they build their initial base of knowledge to begin their lives. Yeah, that's really when you should be a hobbyist in the profession oh, of teaching. Absolutely. You know. But yeah, you should make your bread elsewhere and this is something that you just dabble in for fun. Yeah, it's kind of like woodworking. Absolutely. It's like whittling. Except mm -hmm. with but, yeah. uh, it's people. Yeah. It's, yeah, the requirement uh, is two years. Yeah, it was basically started... Two years as, of teaching time. Yes. Okay. So, so they are free to leave after two years. And they have a ten... And I do believe that about 40... Let's say, let me look... The Teach for America, um, so 64% do stay beyond the two-year period. Okay, 64%. But that is still a fairly large dropout rate for, you know, one of the key foundational jobs for society. In one of the most vulnerable types of places for people falling through the cracks and Absolutely. being failed by the system already. I mean, let's be fair to the Teach for America program. I don't, I mean, the, it's got, it does have very good intentions. It, has, it is, it, it is national service. Yes. It has it very is, good intentions. I think the people that join, like, you know, not, I mean, I, we can guess as to what the administrative, you know, people are thinking. But I do believe mm -hmm. that the people that actually join to teach under Teach for America 
do have good intentions. It's an incredibly noble thing to do. It's a it's a very important to thing to do. Choose I, to do something like yes. that in such a tough environment. Absolutely. I think the downside of something like this, it, and I think the downside of the downfall of public education in general, you know, is the fact that we do not value, I think, teaching is a profession anymore. And also, we're not doing a lot of effort as a society to really encourage people to teach and to figure out what makes effective teachers. You know, one of the biggest things about effective teachers is having experienced veteran teachers stay of, you know, of having a very good retention rate in teachers and I think especially in more challenging environments like urban environments it can be more imperative that you have veteran teachers especially if when you are being challenged with with kids that come from you know very disadvantaged or impoverished backgrounds that it's incredibly important to have teachers that are aware of what to do what to say what not to say and how to relate to these kids and those things can only come through experience and not only that but it's the kind of experience that someone who is going to an expensive private university and has had zero real world experience in the inner city has there's no way a person in that position Unless it's a very specific, like, individual person. I'm sure there have been plenty of Teach for America teachers who didn't necessarily come from elite universities. But it's from those elite universities that you will most likely be able to afford taking that kind of work and spending two years on something like that. True. True. It's like the intern positions. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's almost like an apprentice teacher in one of the circumstances where you need a goddamn wizard to get to get real education through to be able to get real education through to kids who may be malnourished who may not have homes who may be who are in some of the most dire straits of any people in American society like it's it's a little bit mind-boggling to me that they're placed in that position in classrooms like that without having even, at least veteran teachers alongside them. Um, some of them do have uh, mentor programs and regardless of, you know, how people become teachers, whether you are a teacher with a standard, you know, national and state teaching certificate, whether you come from, you know, Teach for America, um, one of the biggest keys um, that's been, you know, figured out through um, doing research is that mentorship is an incredibly important aspect to teacher retention. For um, and so that that has been and that does exist with Teach for America. Um, one of the criticisms is that the mentorship is very cursory and not extensive enough. Yeah, and actually, you you found you pulled a Huffington Post article by Kenzo Shibata, 
um, that's called Teach for America, What's the Purpose? And he says, TFA mentors, Teach for America mentors, tend to be TFA graduates themselves with little experience. My mentor lived in the community where she, where we worked and had decades of experience. There are more teachers like her, and TFA could connect them with struggling first and second year teachers. I would hate to think that TFA existed not to improve schools, but to create an unstable workforce of compliant, cheap labor. And I mean, whoa, that's a that's a firm. Uh, that's not so much a question, really, but it's. Uh, it's one aspect of the what is becoming uh, what is known as the school. Re- it's one aspect of what's known as the school reform movement. That has to be addressed. Yes. Because Teach for America plays an important role in an especially important part of American communities. And that's where obviously real reform efforts need to be concentrated. But it's also where proposed solutions need to be interrogated the hardest. Because if those efforts fail in inner cities... That's going to have vastly higher ripple effect than education in, in small, like, exurbs or rural areas. Like, we're, we're talking millions and millions of children. Well, I think, you know, regard, and that is one of the aspects of the issues of education in this country, is that it's incredibly, you know, stratified. Like, regardless of location, whether it's rural, whether it's suburb, whether it's urban, um, we do not have a guarantee of if you are a child in the United States, you know, without parental and financial intervention, that you, you, there is no more guarantee that you are able to get a quality public education. And and we'll go into this a little bit later um, when we kind of talk about how how the school reform movement intersects with the idea of education and what America shows is its idea of education. But for now, I think it's important uh, to kind of examine Teach for America and also the idea of charter schools in the context of teachers and not just from the student perspective, but I mean, I mean, this this makes me think of the whole approach to teaching that America is prioritizing these days. You know, we have the educational secretary, Arne Duncan, mm-hmm. who's instituted along with the Obama administration, the race to the top program. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to back up a little bit. Oh, yeah, sure. And talk really quickly about um, the job of teaching and basically what that entails, because I think a lot of the public is misinformed about what it means to be a teacher, what it looks like in terms of our days and what's required to be a teacher. Absolutely. Most people know that teachers work nine months a year. That's when school's in session. And so people mistakenly think that that's all they do is, you know, they have three months off. Isn't that great? What are people complaining about? What are we, France? Yes. But, um, and that, you know, also that teachers don't have long working hours because, again, you know, school 
nine, you know, whenever school starts to end, usually eight hours, most people think, oh, teachers go home. The end. Um, but the real teaching day is generally about 12 to 16 hours a day. With Holy eight, shit. With eight hours of standard teaching time. Um, generally speaking, a, a lot of teachers stay for an hour before or after, or sometimes both before and after, to provide extra help to talk to students that are struggling in class, um, to talk to teachers, other teachers, to talk to um, parents that want to come and talk to you. Um, so they put in. <laughs> or yell at you. Yes. So they often put in an hour before, hour after school for specifically just those things. Um, then they also happen to go home and often have three to five hours of grading papers, of reading papers, grading tests, um, and planning, answering emails, um, making more phone calls to parents that may only be available later on at night. Holding, te yeah, holding teacher-parent conferences um, and meetings required by the school district often in evening hours. So, yeah, again, you're looking at, you know, eight hours of teaching, one to two hours of, you know, assisting students and tutoring after or before or both. And then additional three to five hours of work on top of that. And that's not including things like commute. This is like a, a, a another third of a day extra you know? Oh, absolutely. Literally, uh, of work than than most people that we consider full-time employees ever experience. The propaganda about unionized teachers is always rendered in these terms where you think they have lavish lifestyles, but they're, they're spending an extra third of their fucking day working. And they're also not just spending it working, but you have a lot of legal obligations as a teacher as a teacher you are not simply there to teach history or science or whatever you're there to teach i mean you know if your student is sick you have to you know be watchful enough and look out for sick students to send them to the school nurse if they're looking like you know they may be abused at home you are required by law. Yeah, you're legally obligated to report to, it. To report it. And so you're not just looking, you know, you're not just teaching a subject, but you are in the position of being one of the first lines of protection for children as a non-family member. And that's a huge responsibility that we place well, in many cases, teachers are expected to, well, in every case, teachers are expected to be good parents, whether that child's parents are good or not. Absolutely. Like, in many cases, the parent that a teacher has to be is better than mm -hmm. the parent that they're, that those students will ever have. Yes. And that's it's a tragedy, but it also makes it that much more important that the people we send to these schools to do this job are paid fairly, are compensated fairly. That's not just payment. That's not just salary. That's also how we view them as a society. That's They should be lionized. They should be raised up. Oh, and absolutely. Not I mean, just rhetorically, but, but in terms of the, the actual way that they are compensated. 
Yes, con uh, compensation, absolutely. And especially when you, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of uh, uh, slightly tangential, but, you know, when you hear about emergencies that happen at schools like school shootings and how teachers consistently... Always. Teachers throw themselves in front of like assault, they, automatic assault rifle fire. They, yeah. I mean, they are... I mean, when you look at these situations and you look at, you know, how the teachers have behaved in those incredibly stressful situations, you consistently have a group of people that are willing to protect with their lives. Yeah, yeah. And it's... And you have a group of people that, you know, do that for your children, for your children. You know, because, I mean, you don't hear stories of, like, teachers abandoning kids. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> During... The teacher broke the window <laughs> just to jump out of the room. You know, like, you know, so it's one of the, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, te people go into teaching because they understand that it's an incredibly important job. And it is absolutely an important job. Um, so, yeah. And so, you know, they do that nine months out of the year. But, you know, pe and people think that, oh, you know, nine months. They're not. Right. But they're right. not. They're not generally, you know, it varies from state to state. But teachers have continuing education because just like any profession, new information comes out and they need in order to be good teachers. They need to keep on top of their skills. And so that's two to four weeks that they pay out of their own pocket to go take these classes to be better teachers for and your I'm sure, children. I'm sure those classes are not fucking cheap. Yes. Yeah. Because that's specialized knowledge. Of course, always expensive. But like they... Yeah, like if, if they pay out of pocket for that, they also pay out of pocket, I know, for school supplies... Absolutely. Teachers generally spend about a month before like ghouls in session. You're required to start working to, you know, plan for the rest of your coming school year. So actually, it's not nine months that, you know, and basically it's about they are working 11 months out of the year, sometimes more depending on their school district. So the nine-month fallacy is actually a fallacy. That teachers have extremely long hours and very similar work days, too. The nine-month myth is important to point out. And I think, it's the, I think the purpose of it is to minimize the yes. career importance and the absolute necessity of teachers' role in society. I'm glad we kind of... Went over that. And that's actually a lot of the information that we got from this was pulled from a great infographic you found on Upworthy.com called The Real Number of Hours Teachers Work. Pretty much one by one, every single item of supposed information that I've heard in the corporate media about teachers and about how their work is and what their work is has been wrong. And it takes fucking seconds of Googling to dismantle what is very clearly 
like propaganda, but it's propaganda that's getting spread so far and wide, so kind of mindlessly. It's very surprising, like how pervasive the anti-union sentiment is, but specifically the anti-teacher sentiment. And I find that incredibly disheartening, especially because on the international stage, as we become a more technologically advanced society. You know, we are no longer a society of farmers. I mean, absolutely, <laughs> farming is absolutely important. Food is absolutely important. But but we are, you know, we are no longer a community of farmers. We are a community of highly specialized and, you know, highly. Well, and think further ahead, we're going to not be an industrial society. We're going to be a, techno a technological information society. Absolutely. It's like information is the coin of the realm. Like it is the currency that, you know, will sustain you as we progress as a society. And that knowledge is highly specialized knowledge. And with teachers, that knowledge is not only the content of what they're trying to instruct kids with, it's also the techniques and the emotional depth and strength that is necessary to relate to every single child in yes. your classroom, even though they are each completely different human beings with completely different sets of motivations and circumstances out of which they're coming to you. Even though, as you said, there's no federal right to a quality public education, it seems that the game of federally funding education is becoming one that focuses on teachers as though they're a problem to be solved. That focuses on teaching and the quality of the people who are currently doing it as the root of a crisis. When, when you hear public schooling being talked about, it's, it's in crisis language. It's our failed and failing public school system, you know? It's well, it's, it's considered a problem to be fixed rather than an institution that needs more support. Yeah. And I think yeah. it doesn't sound like a huge difference, but it is. Because when you have a problem to fix, the concentration is on who is wrong versus an institution that needs support isn't necessarily a blame game. Well, and also the fact that the kind of orientation of that idea is to kind of lend itself to solutions that cut. So in other words, it lends itself to the right-wing ideology that we always have to cut the sides of government and always have to give more rich people money if we run candidates who will defund public school systems and then who will reallocate funding for private charter schools, for private prisons, or anything like that. Vouchers. Or for because, vouchers themselves. Because prior exactly. to the charter school system, you know, the voucher system was actually a lot more popular. Right. At vouchers vouchers seem to have kind of their their heyday and it seems like they've been kind of supplanted or replaced by charter, schools, charter schools as a kind of uh, fix all 
solution to the quote-unquote education crisis. Yes. This is from the New York Review of Books. Uh, the article is called The Myth of Charter Schools. Um, and I'm going to read an excerpt from that article. Um, so it's uh, American public education is a failed enterprise. The problem is not money. Public schools already spend too much. Test scores are low because there are so many bad teachers whose jobs are protected by powerful unions. Students <laughs> drop out because schools failed them, but they could accomplish practically anything if they were saved from bad teachers. They would get higher test scores if schools could fire more bad teachers and pay more to good ones. Um, the only hope for the future of our society is especially for poor black and Hispanic children, is escape from public schools, especially to charter schools. Escape from public schools was my least favorite escape from movie in, in the franchise of <laughs> New York, L.A. and public schools. I really feel like Kurt Russell uh, lost the page on that one. That article is basically summing up some of the um, documentaries that we've seen, which espouse the charter school movement, Waiting for Superman, right, was the right. most popular. Again, a, a completely unlikely sequel to Waiting for Guffman. I, <laughs> but yeah, like, yeah, and there have been, they've been a bunch of other ones, yes, too. Um, you know, all with great, great blockbuster movie names like The Lottery. Oh, Christ. And this is, I think, the best one out of the three. Because it has such a nice, ominous ring that it could, like, you know, it's it could run side to side with a godfather, but it's called The Cartel. What? Yes. <laughs> the Cartel. Yes. So it's about a teacher's union <laughs> that finds out it has terminal cancer <laughs> and becomes a meth cook but makes really awesome blue meth in Arizona <laughs> and then becomes a kingpin and wait no that's breaking bad that's breaking um, bad yeah they went really dramatic wow with the, the cartel the cartel, in fact, so referring to the union, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, the cartel maintains that we must not only create more charter schools, but provide vouchers. Oh uh, yeah. So that children can flee incompetent public schools and attend private schools. So let's briefly uh, explain what vouchers are. I mean, I know they're kind of less prominent and less touted as a solution to everything in the world that's wrong. But uh, briefly, vouchers are kind of lump sums of money that are given out at or the, before the beginning of the school year, I guess, to parents of children in low income areas. Actually, um, depending on because, again, these tend to be local and state or usually state, I believe state, state, -based, state by okay. state based okay. um, issues. So it depends. The vast majority of vouchers are not just for low income. It's to all parents. Okay. Yes. So that was that was one of the issues of voucher systems is that yeah, giving a lump sum money to, for any parent that would like to send their child to 
a private institution over a public institution, except that is federal, that is taxpayer funded money. Right. Wow. So that, so basically they remove the tax revenue from the public school system. Yes. Literally remove it from that school system and give it to the parents. Yes. Okay. Well, and so that kind of makes sense in the context of the argument that's made for it, which is exactly that, that it's, that it's giving parents the quote unquote choice of where to send their children to school. Now, what's the shortcoming of that? Well, one of the major issues of voucher systems is that they're depending on the school, but as a general rule, most of the amounts that are given as a voucher generally do not cover the full cost of tuition of a private institution because, you know, some people may not be aware, but a lot of private institutions, you know, you don't get free lunches. Lunches have to be paid. Well, and the tuition can be exponentially higher. Uh, exponentially than a higher. A public school would ever yes. be. Um, you often buy your own textbooks. You know, you have uniform requirements. And also, you know, they don't provide buses to get to and from your home to school. Oftentimes, so even if a parent could find a lower cost private school the chances of a voucher covering all the additional expenses that could be covered at a public school often is not which often means that lower income kids do not actually have their the parents do not have a choice of sending them to private schools wow um yeah, that's very dispiriting again. Like every every single aspect about this that we turn over is just a shit sandwich under a shit sandwich <laughs> under a log of more poop. Like it's uh, again the notion that we can impose accountability, quote unquote, on schools or on teachers unions by depriving those school districts of the funding they have. When in many cases, it's the underfunding of those school districts and those schools that leads to those low test results in the first place. Yes. And it's, and also... It's insane! It's so crazy making well and it's and again you know school districts are funded differently by by area and by state but for example a lot of school districts are funded by local property taxes and as a result more impoverished areas have less of an ability to create proper budgets to be able to provide for the children in the community that it's servicing if property taxes are how it gets its funding. And also, un- you know, unfortunately, the impoverished districts are the districts that are in need of more 
after school programs and more programs to keep the kids and more veteran teachers who know how to teach in high stress situations effectively it's like every single factor of the actual problems in the school system and every single solution in play that claims to solve those problems they're all problems. They're just like adding problems on the problems. Um, and with, while using the rhetoric that they are bold and innovative and proactive and, you know, all the, all the corporate buzzwords it's, and, and it, I think it, in my mind, what the saddest part, even sadder than the, the state of teaching is what it must be like to be a student in that situation now oh absolutely well i mean especially with all the school closings that are happening in a lot of urban areas i mean the big chicago strike um started in part due to protests over i believe they were looking to close up to 53 schools i think it's 52 or 53 yeah Chicago, Chicago's mayor, Rahm Emanuel, uh, President Obama's former enforcer, is very much a neoliberal Clinton Democrat. Um, and he's he, as well as the Obama administration and Arne Duncan, have been very big on the charter school movement and on moving public education toward a charter based school model. Um, and yeah, he's, he's been relentless and I mean, did the, the school closings are going through, right? I believe believe they are. They've saved some schools from being closed, but it's a very small minority. I don't have the exact number, but we can get it from one of the Chicago. Well, but think about what it must be like to be a child in a, in a school that is about to be shut down or is shut down what it must like the emotional turmoil it it must be bad enough without the kind of confusion that comes with knowing that the people who are supposed to be your authority figures are failing you and it's also not just that but these school closings came with the firing and unemployment of, I believe, around 2,000 teachers. And not just teachers, but, you know, I mean, I, I believe that number is just teachers, but that's just teachers. We're not talking librarians. We're right. not talking, you know, counselors. Yeah, administrative and, and support yeah, staff, staff that go along with that. And again, these are places like the the kinds of places in inner city Chicago, the kind of schools in inner city Chicago that would be, quote unquote, candidates to be shut down would be the schools that are most underfunded, most under understaffed or improperly staffed. So their proposed solution is to shut them down. And then right after Mayor Emanuel announces the plan to close the schools, he announces some, what was it, $200 million more funding for charter schools? Yes. It was like, it, it was just weeks apart. Yeah. Um, and 
and generally with the charter schools favoring new inexperienced graduates over veterans teachers. school teachers yeah, have yeah. been one of the trends yeah so they're they're creating this drain of experience and skill in the the real profession and art of teaching at the same time they're pulling the last legs out from under the prior public system in the institution of the public education system that America had. And add to that, that we still live in a no child left behind America with warmed over Bush era education policies. And that's largely remained unchanged. And one of the biggest ramifications of the no child left behind law was a shift toward teaching to tests. One of the supposed guiding principles of the reforms in No Child Left Behind was for school accountability. And the way that they measured that arbitrary accountability was standardized testing. Yes. And it's administered some different ways across the country, like with the Race to the Top program, they determine funding levels for different school districts based on the performance of the children in the standardized tests. And the evidence is coming in now. The actual evidence is coming in. And I, I, I started reading last night um, about my hometown of New Orleans, Louisiana, and I had no idea the depth of the transformation that had really occurred there in terms of public education and the school system. Um, it's been, it had been touted as a success story, but in reality, I think New Orleans has been a guinea pig for a complete dismantling of. America's promise of public education and of America's idea of education as a, a good thing for a democracy. Um, New Orleans is now, it, what was it you said? It's the only or the it first? It is the, still so far, the only city where the majority of the students are now in a charter school instead of a public school. Well, or a public charter school instead of a public school. Right. And, and again, we should be very clear because people who listen to this are going to have different levels of knowledge about this already. But a, a charter school, no matter what people call it, no matter how many places they insert the word public is not a public school. Yes. The administrators of a charter school are not accountable to the voters. They're not accountable to school boards that are determined by the voters. They're not accountable to the forces of democracy. They're accountable only to the bottom line of the, of the corporations that they work for. So... And while some of the corporations may be nonprofit entities, but one of the issues with charter schools is fundamentally um, 
they're they're also judged differently in the sense that there many of the charter school requirements are different from public school requirements. Which, which requirements specifically? Um, for example, is some charter schools are not under the standardized testing requirement that public schools are accountable for. Um, that has a, um, another is that they co- they may collect data differently. Mm, mm-hmm. So because they don't necessarily have to report to the state, the state or, or the federal e- government in the same kind of yeah, in the same ways. Yes. And to the same standards. Yes. So. It- but like in the case of Michelle Ree, who has been one of the leading lights of the quote unquote school reform movement, who's been the star of pretty much all of those school reform documentaries yes was the chancellor of the washington dc public school district and her school district was touted for years as the conclusive evidence that charter schooling was the way to go it's come to light in the last year or so that under her administration the test results that showed gigantic improvement had actually been falsified And when the data was subjected to more rigorous scrutiny, all the claimed benefits she had made about the improvement of these students in standardized tests fell away. As I said, New Orleans has been kind of the guinea pig for charter schooling. The history of charter schools in Louisiana began even before Hurricane Katrina. It began in 2003 when Louisiana's Democratic governor, Kathleen Blanco, Um, got a law passed through the Louisiana legislature uh, giving the state power to take over any schools that were failing or had crappy results in their standardized tests. Um, Because she actually, though she was a quote-unquote Democrat, she's a Democrat in Louisiana, which is not a real Democrat, and she worked very closely with Bush, although she kind of put on a public persona of being opposed to him once Katrina happened. But sounds from this like she was working pretty closely with him, actually, on implementing No Child Left Behind in a very rigorous way in Louisiana because she paved the way, as did the Louisiana legislature, for charter schooling to come in and and gain a financial foothold. The first school that actually got seized by the state was a school in New Orleans in 2004. And actually, I I found a pretty great website from a blogger called Deutsch29, deutsch29 deutsch29.wordpress.com. And he has a super duper long web page, but really breaks down intricately the history of the charter school movement in Louisiana. The American Legislative Exchange Council, Alec. uh, Alec, which has been mentioned many times on this podcast, has not only been financially behind many of the Louisiana legislators who were in place at the time to pass these charter school laws, it funded Bobby Jindal's first gubernatorial campaign that he lost and also helped fund his second one, which he ended up winning. And Bobby Jindal has been one of the leading lights of the charter school movement, Because under his direction, after Hurricane Katrina, the vast and overwhelming majority of what were New Orleans public schools were placed 
under the control of the Recovery School District, which, in other words, became a charter school organization and worked with various for-profit corporations to replace the former public schools with charter schools. In many cases, those were replaced with impermanent schools in temporary buildings, in trailers. But even beyond that, as we talked about earlier, reliance was put on Teach for America staff being brought in. More reliance was put on bringing in non-union teachers. At the time, Louisiana's finances were suffering from the storm, and Bush administration at the time was would offer always offer more funding for building more charter schools and, and bringing that down into the South. For the last decade, the Recovery School District was actually started in 2003. With this in place, it's really been a proving ground and an opportunity for the charter school companies in that movement to prove itself capable at educating children competently. The results of that are in now, too. And they're disastrous. They're absolutely disastrous. Though, again, in every case, when you hear from the charter school movement's supporters, they will massage and finesse the data to support the conclusion that they want. One of the whole charter school promises is about quantifying everything. It's about being able to have specific data to back up everything they say. And like I said, with Michelle Ree, that data completely fell apart under scrutiny. In the case of New Orleans, the charter schools promised to have letter grades for every school and also numerical grades, just like they would with students, you know. They would evaluate the schools based on that. They promised by that ranking they would, you know, vastly improve the standings of those schools relative to where they were even before Katrina. But now something like 65 or 69 percent of the schools have a failing grade, have a C, D or F out of A, B, C, D, F. (laughs) So all the claims they made about being able to get kids to be able to perform better in those tests fall apart under scrutiny. That's one of the biggest issues with these, you know, arbitrary grading systems. And it's interesting because um, I've always found it interesting that uh, some of the biggest charter school supporters have been some of the giants in the tech industry, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, um, you know, there, there's a lot of people in that industry that have a huge fondness for charter schools. I've always found that interesting. And I think to a degree, a lot of people in business tend to end up looking at just data and not the human component. You know, because children aren't machines, children aren't computer chips. Can't send them to a factory and have an engineer, you know, a team of engineers tinker with a chip and and replicate that data to across, you know, to an individual child. You can't put children through that kind of factory model and expect each of them to come out as the best possible versions of that tiny human that they could be. And that is, I think, part of the core definition of what it means to have public education and to view education as a public good that we're violating 
in this rush to inject a profit motive and to inject the private sector into our public education. I think what's being done in New Orleans and what people in both, obviously in both red states and blue states are trying to do is follow the ALEC model of privatizing all things that used to be public goods and measuring things that used to be public goods by the metrics of the private sector. Not only does it not translate, it undermines the public value of those things as institutions because it removes any kind of accountability from a democratic perspective for the people who ultimately have a say in what goes on. Well, it and ultimately is subjected to those conditions. It, it becomes subjected to those conditions by virtue of injecting people whose careers depend on making profit into administrative roles in schools. Not only that, but Alec and its corporate backers have reached so far and so deep into Louisiana politics. They not only helped fund Bobby Jindal's first and second campaigns and then his second term run for governor. I'm sorry about your home I, uh, state. Oh, I, I feel sorry for Louisiana as well. Like it's, and that's just one of the aspects of that state that he has utterly just helped ruin. Alec then helped get le more legislators stuck into the Louisiana legislature, and then they passed a number of Alec model bills. Alec is not only a kind of channel for anonymous corporate donations of money to political campaigns, it's also a kind of clearinghouse for model legislation that Alec's lobbyists and corporate lawyers and corporate titans draw up and then feed to the legislators and the legislatures that they've got their hands in and to the, you know, it's heads of state tank, and everything. Yeah. yeah, well, but it goes beyond just a think well, tank. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because what ends up happening is that these legislators are obviously paid by Alec not to pay attention to what's in the laws. They're paid to be a rubber stamp for them. Yes. Um, so they got additional bills passed that were related to teacher tenure and evaluation, of course, making it more difficult for teachers to keep their jobs and to get tenure, making it more likely that teachers can be fired for capricious reasons or for teaching things that go against the political inclinations of what's now their for-profit private employer in some cases. Their second act that was an ALEC model bill was, of course, vouchers. Mm -hmm. Again, it's been this kind of fantasy land of all of these education reform ideas, it, but it's gone even further than that. The person who was appointed to become the superintendent of all these charter schools is named John White, and he is one of the closest friends of Mike Bloomberg, mm -hmm. as in governor of New York. John White was like handpicked for this position and then funded by 15 multimillionaires and billionaires, including Mike Bloomberg and Jeb fucking Bush. Jeb Bush, former governor of Florida, brother of George W. Bush, Jeb Bush. Like, 
these are the people to whom the superintendent, the person at the top of the charter schools, that's who he answers to now. He doesn't answer to the parents. The parents don't have the choice and the accountability and don't have options to hold John White accountable because he doesn't owe them shit. What he owes his career to and his position to are people who will never and have never lived in Louisiana or New Orleans who have no connection to it, who have no incentive, you know, at all in the process, except profit. Yeah, profit. And and it's also, you know, interesting to note that a lot of these people that feel that they can talk about public school or, you know, know what, how to quote unquote fix public schools often have never attended one. Oh, exactly. Oh, they're all Ivy Leaguers and... For the most part, they were old money, not new money. But And then it went even further than that. John White became Louisiana State Superintendent of Education in January 2011 because he was so close with Bobby Jindal. In 2011, a coterie of extremely wealthy billionaires, including Mike Bloomberg, turned the races for unpaid positions on the Louisiana Board of Elementary and Secondary Education into some of the most expensive elections in the state's history. Seven pro-education, quote-unquote, reform candidates for this BESE outraised eight candidates endorsed by the teachers' unions by $2,386,000 to $199,000 in a ratio of nearly 12 to 1. In just one of these races... The executive director of Teach for America Greater New Orleans, Louisiana Delta, whose name is Kira Orange-Jones, outspent attorney Lou Bala Givens, who was endorsed by the state's main teachers' unions, by more than 34 to 1. $472,000 raised by Kira Orange-Jones to $13,815 raised by Luella Givens. Alec basically bought the state's education system education system it's 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 plaything the next generation of louisiana's kids are the plaything of america's one percent you know there are very successful charter schools out there and i do think that as a general trend you know we absolutely need to support public education um, I think how charter schools can be used for good is not being explored. Because I think it's possible to have a very small and limited percentage of charter schools that can try very innovative. That, you know, charter schools can be a place where innovation takes place to be passed on to public schools. And I, I'm sure... Th- I'm sure I I totally agree with that. And I'm sure that that um, kind of mentality could help the public school system overall. But it's not being that. Well, charter schools are not being put in a position of working in conjunction with public education. They're being put in a place of antagonistic. Not only antagonistic, cannibalization. Yes. We're cannibalizing. We're breaking down the public school system for scrap 
to feed corporations. Yes. To feed the profit motive. Again, the propaganda is always about making a level playing field for education, but they're not asked to play on the same field. They're able to dismantle the public school field. Yes. And then point to it as having an insufficient field, (laughs) you know, And, and then they're not held to the same standards. They're not. Their data isn't subjected to the same rigor. They're it, like it, when when so much about it is made unequal, mm-hmm. it's impossible to then claim that you're equalizing things. Absolutely. But yeah, one of the big issues about education and the equality of education is that, again, like when you are talking about community that is economically in a depressed area, you're going to have much larger amount of students that do not have their basic survival needs met. They may not even literally have parents. They may be in foster care systems. They may be living with extended family members that are already overextended. And a lot of these children, like the school meal, may be the only meal they get. And when you're talking about, you know, these types of environments, you can't expect to have education equality when you have students that don't have their basic needs met. You can't expect these kids to focus on school when they're starving. The school programs, lunch programs are constantly on the cutting table. And and of course, switching to charter school models and switching to charter schools uh, by cannibalizing public school funding uh, allows the people who support those to get away with saying that they're reducing the burden on taxpayers by making it cheaper. But really, they're just shifting the costs and they're shifting them onto the people in the least capable position of paying the costs. Yes. And not only that, but in the case of Louisiana's voucher program specifically, it's actually making segregation worse, as if income inequality wasn't making it difficult enough for governments to fulfill their basic needs. This is from an article from Think Progress. Louisiana school districts with a long history of racial segregation are becoming more segregated because of the state's voucher program, according to a motion filed by the Department of Justice this week. In at least 13 districts still under federal monitoring because of continuing segregation, Governor Bobby Jindal's program to use public funds toward tuition for private schools is sending kids who had diversified those schools to those with more similar racial makeup, the DOJ explains in its filing. The state's voucher program has been implemented amidst much controversy. The state court held in May that the funding mechanism for the voucher program violated the state constitution because it allocated funds budgeted for public education to private schools instead, rather than specifically budgeting funds for vouchers. But Jindal found funds for what is known as the Louisiana Scholarship Program elsewhere and proceeded with implementation. 34 school districts in the state are still subject to federal oversight because racial divides have persisted since the U.S. Supreme Court held that state-imposed segregation was unconstitutional. In its filing, the Justice Department presented evidence that students who were the small minority in the school they were attending, blacks in primarily white schools and whites in primarily black schools, sought and received vouchers to leave the schools and attend more homogeneous schools instead, reversing desegregation 
mission progress. The DOJ argues that Louisiana fell short of its legal duty when it failed to even consider the impact that the voucher program would have on desegregation. And I think that's the big key. And I think that will lead into kind of the the final big part of this. What the voucher program and the way that it's been implemented really reveal the priorities of the stakeholders involved and the people with power. I mean, I I kind of said most of this already in addressing what's being done with Louisiana's educational system, but it's become very clear to me with what little I've learned, but even the additional reading I've done for this podcast, that the real purpose of voucher programs and of charter schools is to de-emphasize what really was a long-held principle in America that education was liberating. Yes. That education is not only important economically to make sure that your citizens are intelligent and skilled enough to get the kinds of jobs that you need to have a functioning growing year-over-year market economy. It's also mandatory to educate children to make them into good citizens. The United States is still a democratic republic. We have a representative democracy. And for our representatives to have intelligent discourse and successfully pass and write major legislation, they need to represent informed and engaged people. Absolutely, absolutely. They need to represent people who know enough about their world, about their place in it, and about what they can do to change it to participate in elections, to know which candidates to support. To become candidates themselves? Public education is one of the major ways to invest in your community, in the well-being of your community. It's not just investing in individual children. It's investing in the idea idea of of community community. in and of itself as being a thing that is virtuous. Yes. Well, it's part of the social fabric and the social obligation that we have yes in the, the in the social society. fabric is it kind of built out of these feedback loops of actions and jobs and kind of economic transactions as well but also actions and principles that inform our actions and my worry is that the proposed quote unquote solutions to some of these problems that are being identified in our educational system are putting in place negative feedback loops. They're putting in place feedback loops that reinforce inequality, which I think is the main driving force of the real problems that we already have. It's putting in a a feedback loop that encourages children to just regurgitate information rather than to incorporate knowledge and to think critically and think creatively and independently. It's creating feedback loops where people who would be teachers are less likely to stick around for the long haul because in many cases they they simply can't afford to or can't take the pressure. Yeah. Or they don't have the support. It, and right. Don't and have don't have the support. support and training and mentorship that they need to maintain an incredibly 
emotionally draining job. A lot of teachers have over a hundred students that they teach every single year. Imagine having to work with a hundred co-workers that you actually have to engage in every day and, and not just assign tasks. And but they're not just your co-workers, but to some extent their lives and their future livelihoods depend entirely on your efforts. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, these are, you know, un unlike co-workers, which you may not necessarily be required to emotionally invest in like teachers do invest in their students teachers emotionally invest in their students they are legally required to look after the well-being of their students and possibly you know advocate for their students if they're being abused at home and exactly and that and that's that's one of the those are some of the tangible ways in which they're part of the social fabric, fabric. yes it reveals a priority about us that we believe in teaching, that we believe in sharing and disseminating knowledge, that we don't believe that information is the thing that you should have to have vast amounts of money to access. But it's becoming it's it, it, the act of education and the act of giving children education is getting pulled into the conversation we have about the market, about economy, about the value of money. I believe we're seeing corporations actively confuse the value of education with an economic value. It's not an economic value. No. It's a social value. It's a small d democratic value. Yes. It's a social value. It's um, it's a life satisfaction value. I mean, curiosity and creativity are two of the most important aspects of living a satisfying and full life. Um, well, and I, I and I believe that I actually believe that everyone is born with oh, creativity absolutely. and curiosity. And I think it's again, I think it's a mark of an educational model that's still rooted in industrial age kind of widget making that creativity and that kind of individuality and critical thinking are not being kind of enculturated in students, that they're being pushed down. And I think that the charter school movement at its worst and vouchers in their form in which they're existing now are creating conditions that will discourage those things, that won't be able to encourage critical thinking or independent thought from the teacher angle that won't have it as a guiding principle uh, principle from the top that trickles down, that, that don't have that that, that don't have that basis in a principle of positive, like the positive morality of education, that that's just not a part of the rationale for the people involved in making these decisions anymore because they've been funded by people whose money supersedes that set of principles. And if it's, it, it, it could well be part of, the foundation of certain charter companies. It could be part of that. It could be, it's certainly that kind of nobility of spirit that leads you to want to make a difference in the life of a child by sharing knowledge with them and kind of unlocking their brain um, is certainly one that is part of plenty of Teach for America teachers and part of plenty of charter school teachers as well. We're not we talking have to, about teachers as Visuals. We're talking about the systems in yes. which they're operating, operating. because yes. the systems that they're operating in have much more effect on the ultimate 
education that children receive or don't receive than any individual teacher, than any other like fellow classmate that kid will have in the classroom. Um, We're talking about the formative production of good citizens being revealed as something that's no longer a priority of people with the power to make decisions over kids' education. And I think that's, that's ultimately the scariest thing that comes to mind for me when I read about the charter school movement and about the vouchers, because it's again and again, it's, it's turning out to be the same group of folks, Alec, the American legislative exchange council, all of them, Mike Bloomberg, the the kind of technocratic billionaire like Bill Gates. It's not necessarily a bad thing that people with vast sums of money want to spend that money on ostensibly good social causes. That's not an inherently bad thing at all. No. But we have to recognize that their incentives within the system of our country may be different than the set of incentives that would face a government of this country if that government were addressing this social problem. And I'm firmly of the belief that there are some social problems that can only be solved by the actions of a whole society working together to solve it. Yes. That not all of our social problems that, that reflect a lack of principle on our parts or an insufficient commitment to a principle... It's okay for us to come to the knowledge that we've betrayed our principles or that we've lost sight of them. But it's also important to subject their proposed solutions to those problems with a lot of scrutiny and a comparison of those solutions um, or I'm sorry, like scrutiny of those proposed solutions that not only empirically puts them on firm footing, but also that makes sure they're living up to the principles that we're claiming to uphold because it'll not only undermine those kind of broader things that we like to tell ourselves about how good a country we are. It literally undermines the potential for future generations to do better at upholding those principles. Well, and and one of the aspects of education was the, in in terms of a goal towards a more equitable society, a less class, you know, stratified society, that education was the key. Enlightenment. Of, yes, regardless <laughs> of the education level of your parents or the socioeconomic level of your parents, we as a society wanted to invest in you to be able to not remain in your genetic lottery of pure luck of, you know, where you were born. And we used to have a set of public institutions that we adequately funded as a whole country and whose agents in the form of teachers we trusted and valued as a country to fulfill that obligation. 
And in the quest to revise or recreate those institutions in the 21st century, we're going to have to face down a set of entrenched interests whose incentives are perverse, who are trying to control that system and use it for their own ends. Well, I think one of the aspects, because the standardized testing systems, all the directions that we see with the voucher systems and the charter school systems that we're looking at in terms of public education, you know, uh, it's again, it's a little tangential, but I always felt like the end of arts education was the beginning of the end of public education. And the reason that I say that is because, you know, the creativity is incredibly important. Um, arts is is considered, I mean, you, you ask, you know, Carl Sagan, you ask Richard Feynman, you ask some of the greatest minds, you know, they say, you know, creativity in arts is absolutely vital to a well-rounded functional mind. That, you know, science and technology and knowledge is not, you know, that art is not leisure, that art is not... Um, just some pastime, but that it is an important function of the brain because that is what gives you inspiration, gives you the ability to see outside of, you know, what you may have been taught. It gives you a, the ability to reconstruct a world that, you know, is And to imagine to, a better world. Yes. And I, I think the revealed vision of many, if not the kind of overall entirety of the quote-unquote school reform movement, is to change the definition of education into a process where children ingest a certain set of facts, only enough facts to prepare them to be obedient. People are starting to look at things at a, you know, look at the public education system and look at the benefits of it in a more of a business model and, you know, a for-profit type of business model mentality that is going into right. And we're, we're, we're defining value, the value of education in terms of whether you're getting your money's worth as though yes. that's yes. the and barometer of it, like well, it's, it's, that it's a market transaction, but it's not a market transaction. It's no. a, it's a, it's a civilizing function it's a it's it's such an obvious public good that everyone has a stake in but the people who are fighting and in many cases successfully getting control of the systems that administer this clearly don't have that civic sense about them at all in fact quite the opposite it's it's an uncivic sense that they the individual like noble billionaire or whatever can go in from outside and save the poor wretches of the inner cities. Well, it's a certain hubris that is, you know, being presented rather. It's not, you. it's one of, because what you're. Again, it's, it's a marketizing it's a market view of, of humanity that like the ingredients for successful humanness can be boiled down to, you know, like 18 parts history yes six parts math and, and that's and no part art or music. no part art or music no because those yeah it, it's ironic those billionaires fund so many arts programs 
Well, the Koch brothers did, right, you know, exactly. give money to the American they've, Ballet they've Theater. They built so many um, cancer wards and ballet ballet arenas. I don't know what they are. <laughs> ballet. Symphony halls, usually. It would be amazing to have um, ballet in an arena. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those interesting things where, you know, because instead of looking at these educational institutions, whether they're public or private, is it's it's interesting how this mindset puts both institutions in more of a competitive, which is, you know, the essentials of a business mind is competition, right? And so instead of looking at education and looking at the private system or the charter system or the public education system and trying to make all of these parts work together in cooperation sympathetically, sympathetically. with, with again with positive feedback loops Absolutely. rather than literally like the most obvious negative feedback, feedback loop you can imagine which is literally stealing the funding well, from it's one it's punitive and, yeah it's exactly punitive exactly. you know rather than cooperative it's punitive which is a lot of times what competition is is you're supposed to beat the shit out of your competition not work with them right in, well and, and in, actually and i had read um that in new orleans it's it's gotten competitive to the point that the remaining truly public schools in new orleans the orleans parish school district schools which are like 15 out of 75 or so schools got first pick of all the students so they now cherry picked the highest testing students to get for themselves, leaving a lot of talented kids, of course, to go to charter schools, but also leaving the poorest performing kids to go to the poor performing or cheaper charter schools. So again, it's creating more competition between these facets of the school system while also taking it out on the ultimate education of the students involved. That's the sickest part is that all of these negative feedback loops directly hit the students, not just the teachers. Not just the teachers. They're punishing these districts with poor performing students when these are the districts that clearly need more support. Exactly. It's a it's it's you know, when it comes down to how these work out in real life in in the actual education system, the kids that need the most work. It's not that they're not intelligent, you know. They may have speech impediments, they may have learning, learning disabilities, disabilities, hearing disabilities. A lot of times, you know, a lot of those and especially if their parents do not have health care. You know, there are a lot of kids that go undiagnosed. It's amazing how, you know, I remember a friend of mine that was a teacher of trying like, you know, she had a very bright student and she was like, why can't, you know, fifth grade still couldn't read or write. Wow. Clearly a smart girl. And she had and just for some odd reason just kept passing and going. And in fifth grade, she still couldn't read or write. Well. She had a vision problem. Holy shit. And nobody picked it up. They used to do vision testing in schools. Yeah. They used to yeah. do hearing testing in schools. They don't anymore. I didn't know that either. Wow. She had a, uh, I can't remember the specific type. It was, she could see okay. She had a very hard time focusing. 
Mm. And it had some it had something to do with like weakness of eye muscle, but it was a vision issue that right. she wasn't able to, you know, clearly read or write. This is going into a different topic of of healthcare and universal healthcare, but you know, all diagnosing these kids it's not free. You need specialists. A lot of times, parents aren't aware. They're not necessarily in the position of, you know, teaching their kids how to read and write or do math or whatnot. They're, you know, the most loving parents could be, "Hey, honey, how are you doing in school? Oh, you seem to be doing well. Oh, that's great. Here's dinner." So you you have these issues of. Of needing the funds to properly test these kids, right? And of course, that's the kind of testing that you never hear about the value of, you know. But those are that kind of testing is it's like imperative to it's, it's not only imperative to their educational like experience in that moment. It's imperative to their entire understanding and their again the the formation of their self in their life. Absolutely, and the earlier that it gets caught in their educational career, the earlier it can be corrected. But again, this correction sometimes it requires that a child needs an aid. These are their needs that they have no control over. That as a society, we should feel that you know we should provide for. Because education shouldn't be oh, if you have vision problems, if you have hearing problems, if you have speech impediments, if you have learning disabilities, you can go fuck yourself. That's not good access to education. It's a literally uncivilizing notion. It's a notion that tears at the social fabric. Absolutely. That the thought that your education really doesn't improve. My livelihood. It doesn't make you able to be a better participant in the same economy that I'm a part of. It doesn't make you able to be a smarter consumer who doesn't make financial choices that wreck you or your or a whole family, which would make you then become more dependent on 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 those dreaded government handouts. Handouts. The way that not only the right wing but kind of the corporate and 1% mindset approaches remedying social problems in America. I think in the 21st century, it's grown so pernicious that it's transparent now. Yes. But it can't be pointed out enough times that they literally don't have the same idea of what America is and is supposed to be. The issue with education isn't even simply like you know. Sometimes people kind of as a snark say, "Oh, you know, well, you know, education about whatever you or your parents can afford, right?" Is is、yeah. a term、yeah. that gets tossed out a lot, as you know, often as snark from the left. You know, now a lot of vocational trade has gone to private for-profit schools that are incredibly expensive. We don't have time to get into the post-secondary yeah, educational world、too. in this episode、so. of the By That I Mean、yeah. podcast, but even the fact that college students in America are expected to pay. As much money as they are expected to pay to go to college, well, to even a they, public funded state a, school, it, right? Even a public funded, like the the tuition rates 
themselves should be criminal, should literally be criminalized in my opinion. I think it literally should be illegal. Let's be honest, a lot of the 21st century jobs, especially middle class ones, are going to be vocational kind of service jobs and administrative jobs like that. And that's where vocational school can really come in handy. But the, the fact that people who want to go to college have to pay six digits and, and get that in loans that they have no chance of ever paying back is not only like a moral crime, it's a threat to the economic system. We're building up another bubble where we have an over $1 trillion student loan bubble now. And I mean, you want to talk about negative feedback loops, the saddling of, a, of an entire generation at the earliest point of their adulthood with an insurmountable amount of personal debt that they can never get rid of even through bankruptcy is criminal. Is a, it's criminal. And it's a negative. Again, it's a it's a feedback loop that makes it less likely that that person will take advantage of opportunities, will expand their imagination for what their lives can be, will be motivated to participate in politics, will be motivated to try to join with other people to bargain for better wages and better benefits at work will be, in all the ways that matter, constricted from leading a full life as an independent and socially valued and valuable human being. Absolutely. And I think also, again, like as our society becomes more technologically advanced um, and more, you know, where the focus on where we're I mean, part one aspect, you know, let's just, you know, ignore the no longer existent art and music program yeah. and, and look at, you know, STEM education, which is, you know, science, technology, oh, engineering and math. You know, I mean, as we become more technologically advanced, we are going to start seeing bills about, hey, how do we regulate and cloning, for example, because that's going oh, to... Thankfully, George W. Bush took care of all that <laughs> when he banned human-animal hybrids. Do you remember but... <laughs> when that was part of his State of the Union address? For the privacy having to do with, say, our genetic material. Yes. Yes. These things are going to be issues that get debated, that get talked about, that's going to be yeah. legislated, regulated. We're rewriting the compact that kind of defines what America is as an idea, what it's comprised of as a society, what kind of institutions we want to make together. And it's important that we really go into that act and that process with an understanding of our role in it as citizens, because I still think that although more people are waking up, I think a lot of things like, for instance, this quote-unquote school reform movement are happening under our noses, that a lot of the groundwork for them came long before yes. uh, even the internet, mm -hmm. um, and that it's very, very important that we become mobilized about them now yes. before the largest manifestations of them and the end goals of all these people behind the kind of uh, negative rewriting of our social compact are, are becoming much clearer. The, yeah. Their goals are becoming much more transparent. When you 
turn everything into a commodity, when you turn everything into an economic transaction, you remove the value of principles and humanity, humanity and ethics and not even like something as nebulous as ethics, but just humanity and community. You remove those from the equation. It's not as necessary to wonder if the education you've given a child has unlocked his or her imagination for their lives. If all you're really interested in getting out of an education for any particular student is an obedient worker. If all you're interested in is making people good consumers, then the kind of educational system you're going to be okay with is one in which we decide our education policy based on the idea that students are just consumers like anyone else. Yes. But in so doing and in making that choice, you're reducing the potential for the very economy you're participating in. Well, it's I, like it's yeah. such a self-undermining it is. obsession with greed that well and it's it's such it's self-undermining in such a big way because it's not yes. i mean because what this is effectively doing is this is effectively driving down the quality of life for an entire country and it's also reducing our ability to you know participate productively over time in an international community because and is, in an international, international economy. economy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. A hundred years ago, going to another city, like going from San Diego to LA was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Took a long time. You maybe made that trek, you know, twice in your life. Right, exactly. If that many times. If that many times, you know, I mean, you people lived very local lives everywhere. You know, and as, you know, with the advent of cars and, you know, trains and bullet trains and airplanes, you know, and the Internet. The world has become a much, much, much smaller place where we're not just local people anymore. Well, in all of those things, all of those means of transportation were invested in by the federal government. Using taxpayer money. money. And they were eventually privatized, many of them, if not most of those functions. But but many of the functions are not. I mean, for example, our freeway system. You know, exactly. people, people, you know, raise a lot of hell against the concept of socialism. But, you know, our freeway system. But we do it. Yes. But America, America has been socialist since we've had a federal government. Well, I mean, and, and yeah. not only that, but going back to what we talked about earlier, the, the federal government made the GI Bill. Yes. And that elevated generations of white Americans into the middle class. That's in part, along with all the in other investment that went on in building up America's economy for the World Absolutely. War. Like that built... Mm -hmm. The strongest middle class that America's ever had in the most roaring economy that we've had that placed us in uh, at the top spot in the entire world. It made us the world's economic superpower. We've 
had eras in America where we collectively understood that direct government action was sometimes necessary to fulfill shared common interests that we all had. Absolutely. The problem with those was not that idea. The problem with those was that we limited that action to certain groups of people. In most cases, we limited it to white Americans. But over time, we have expanded our definition of what it means to be American. But at the same time and over the same course of history where we've expanded the definition of what it means to be American, we've narrowed our definition of what we expect out of America. And we've allowed our definition of what our society is supposed to promise us and what we're supposed to be promising each other to be narrowed and to be abused and skewed into this idea that we're just supposed to get rich or die trying. And it goes against what are still the, the remaining instincts of the majority of Americans. One of the aspects of public schooling that, you know, we can't put a financial, uh, the value of it is more than financial, is the fact that in public schools, you were able to be and, and have this idea of community with people from very different walks of life that you don't necessarily interact with in your immediate family. There's this, you know, bunch of kids that you're friends with from, you know, a different part of town that, you know, you never, you know, that are from maybe different backgrounds, different races, different religions, different, you know, whatever. You know, again, different countries. I mean, what And again, America at a certain point in, in our history, in our recent history, had that as a principle that we as a country agreed was worth getting government in on. It was worth getting the government to write and pass rules saying that you couldn't discriminate against people, saying that you had to provide equal education to all people. You know, we, we have shown that we are able to hold and act on these goals before. It's just that when we get demotivated, when we get pushed into cynicism, when we get comfortable in our ignorance and drop out and don't participate, that's when the dominating money of a small, small minority of people is able to drown out the wishes and the best interest of 100% of us. And I think that is one of the biggest aspects, is that drowning of, of the concept of best interest. My, like, pie-in-the-sky political desire, if I could have infinite amounts of power, would not be to eradicate capitalism as some kind of concept. My concept would be making a capitalism in which all the people who participate are able to have equal access and equal information. You know, the, the greatest inequality is the asymmetry of information between people who already have the most money and can therefore afford the most information and the people who already have the least money and can therefore least afford the information that will allow them to make more money to allow them to get more information to allow them to move up like you have to create again feedback cycles and feedback loops that allow mobility well that allow mobility that you know not just 
allow people to make more money, but you know, have a certain quality of life. Exactly, and to to learn to understand yeah. life for what it is, to to get emotional intelligence and social intelligence, like those are all things that go into what it really means to have a whole and fulfilling life. And also to be able to become a good parent. Oh, become a good parent, become a good neighbor. Become, exactly. Like you know. these, these kinds of interactions and relationships are not just economic transactions ever. And they, they have ripple effects. They have impacts on, on people's lives. They are life and death situations. They're life and death choices. And it's, it's good that in an age of omniscient and omnipresent internet, we're able to finally connect the dots as to what the real incentives of some of these people with power are. But it's also incumbent upon us to find ways to use the technology to share that with more people and to get them to participate. That is, you know, that, that keyword of sharing is the foundation of teaching. Mm. That teaching is actually sharing the most important thing that we have as people is what we've learned, what we know and sharing that with somebody else. That is the foundation of teaching. That is what, that is actually what separates us from, you know, a lot of animals. I think another thing that separates us from animals is our, is storytelling. Yes. For me, as a student, it was an English class in high school that really unlocked my myself, my actual, like, understanding of myself. I had to fill like a composition notebook with free writing. I was a sophomore, I think, and I hated the teacher, but the class was a revelation for me. And of course, I was lucky enough and privileged enough to get private school all my life. But it was writing that made me kind of unlock my feelings of depression that I felt at the time, helped me kind of move past the kind of hatred of myself that I had at the time. And I don't know where I'd be if that gift hadn't been given to me as part of my education. Expression or what we see as self-expression, in term, whether it's it comes in the form of music, of writing, of, you know, of, of t even talking, of having, you know, the capacity of an expansive vocabulary to be able to be descriptive of what you're thinking, of what you're feeling. Being able to communicate that clearly, you know, a lot of times people think so many skills that people assume are quote unquote natural that mm -hmm, you just have mm -hmm. them are actually developed skills it's that they're teachable skills. Socialization, like uh, knowing yes. social skills took me a long, long. fucking time well, to learn. I still have to yeah. relearn and recalibrate yeah, and yeah. You know, I mean, things, yeah, like things like parenting, that's not not necessarily an innate skill. I think, <laughs> I think a lot, I think a lot of parents are proof of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I think, you know, having a certain sense of compassion and certain sense of empathy, you know, and even those can be taught skills. 
I think at some level they have to be taught, especially empathy, because we do all come from different circumstances and backgrounds. And I think it's also especially as we become and or and will continue to become more of an international community, you know, having empathy is what's going to make that, you know, much more not just, you know, less stressful, but actually enjoyable. This will be a good place to leave off. But if we as a species expect to survive and adapt and evolve to withstand the climate change that we have already locked into the climate, the model with which we view the world and our, the other nations of the world and the other people in this world cannot be competitive. It has to be It cannot be dominating. It can't be imperialistic or our species literally will not survive. We have to learn to share. Well, <laughs> and it's... We have to learn to share. Or rather, we have to forget to be selfish all the time. Because I, I think the... I think the selflessness is always a part of us. But again, when we create feedback loops that allow us to view each other as tools to our own end or and as yeah. just consumers and just economic widgets or something disposable. I think what we are starting to see and and to a degree science is starting to tell us that we are less separate than we have imagined ourselves to be. That these walls that we, you know, have always erected between ourselves, whether it was class, whether it's race, whether it's, you know, countries and borders Absolutely. and cities. That these are artificial borders that we have created in our minds. And we created were. in most cases to either commemorate or perpetuate conflict and competition and Absolutely. resentment and fear and anxiety and isolation and all the kinds of lower order emotional responses. And they're the things that we reach for the easiest when we don't have the education to know that we can react differently. And that, yeah, we aren't as separate as many would like us to believe. I mean, you know, as a human species, our fate is not what one country does. We're all islands, but we're in the same ocean, you know, and we all kind of have to figure out how to float without sinking and we can all help each other and we can create a continent if we all get together, you know, but either way, we've got one planet that we can inhabit at this point. Yeah. So let's try not to it's totally fuck it up. It's a beautiful planet, too, you <laughs> It's know? a beautiful planet. I'm sure we could get a whole lot of money for it <laughs> on eBay. There's a company that's looking for people to go to Mars where you can actually send in an application. I actually have a friend that's writing an application right now, you know, probably as we speak. You know, he's been working on it. Wow. But, you know, and I'm just like, you know, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I mean, that does sound amazing. But, you know, I, I, I have to be honest. I mean, Mars has no chocolate trees. It's true. You guys, we checked Wikipedia. <laughs> There's not no a single, single chocolate, chocolate tree. tree. Now, granted, granted, no chocolate trees on Earth either. <laughs> they, it does not actually grow in bar form on, on any plants oh, yes. that we've discovered yet. But. But. Well, you know, chocolate is a nut. <laughs>
I wasn't aware of that. I believed that chocolate simply appeared in in bar form. Oh, okay. Uh, perhaps floating down well, from the sky, perhaps delivered by some stork. Okay, okay. Well, you know, um, and and Morris doesn't have, at least, you know, for me, doesn't have, like, whiskey. It doesn't have grains nope. to make whiskey. Nope, yeah. No sugar canes. But it also doesn't have Republicans. <laughs> Never know. Oh, fuck. So are you saying that Newt Gingrich's moon base has a secret you plan never know. to escape to Mars? Wow. And, and you know, build and they will come, right? But like I said, you know, I like this planet. Yeah, I like this planet. I think... And I, I'm not really interested in... I think really we should try to in... figure out ways of sticking around on it and perhaps making it a little healthier, a little... A little healthier. A little happier and, toward yeah. us. And, and, you know, education will be the cornerstone of everything. Everything. Of everything. everything. Yes, the dentist that you see, the doctor that fixes you up when you're sick, the car mechanic. When I've got my James Bond syndrome. Yes, you know. The, the rash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact you can practically go anywhere and expect that the vast majority of people are able to read and write and follow directions. That's all teachers. Thanks, teachers. Thanks, teachers. I would not have learned English without a teacher. Me neither. Absolutely. So thanks to teachers and thanks to you. You have taught me a lot tonight. I've taught myself some things. And you've taught me sharing is caring. And this was the By That I Mean podcast. I was... And will continue to be Seth Pearson. And I was and will continue to be Equal Hero. If you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you could, please leave a review. I have very few reviews of the show. And that's how we get rankings to get more people to see the podcast exists and hopefully get more people to listen and learn some stuff along with us. If you like the show, you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash by that I mean. I can be found on the Twitter machines at MFP Seth. Are you on Twitter, Ekoi? I'm a wordy person. 140 characters does not work for me. You guys, she cannot be constrained by your arbitrary character counts. No, I can't. She plays by none of your rules. Absolutely not. The By That I Mean podcast is a production of the MFP studio in Los Angeles, California. And yeah, go learn some shit. Yay! Yay!